0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
1: the sea connects us and everything happens through connections we live in a world which is still obsessed with a very 19th century idea of nationalism we sit in our categories we have different names on our passports we cross frontiers all the rest of it That's not
5: how history
6: happens. That was Michael Pye talking about the importance of geographical connections in world history.
5: We're not talking about subsistence agriculture. These aren't people scratching a living. These are very prosperous, civilised people.
6: And that was Francis Pryor on the reality of Bronze Age society. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello, and welcome to our first podcast of December 2014. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, you might think of the North Sea as a vast, empty expanse, a void between countries. Yet, as Michael Pye argues in his new book, The Edge of the World... It has been central to the spread and development of a huge number of cultures and societies. Our books editor, Matt Elton, met up with Michael to find out more, and he started by asking him what inspired him to research this topic.
1: I think it's a fascination about the gaps mm. in what I know about the past. Um, there is this trim- I know about Amsterdam, I know about the guilt and the glory and all of the, the wonderful dockside life of Amsterdam and the yes. riches. I know a little bit about Rome, at least I've walked around the forum. But what on earth happened hmm. between the fall of Rome and the rise of cities like Amsterdam? OK. And what had to happen to make Amsterdam possible? Right. Okay. Uh, there's so much that's different in terms of, of, of culture, of the way people thought, of the way people behaved, of yes. what was
4: possible in technology. OK. And so talking about gaps, we've got this expanse in the middle of the, of the sea itself. Um, so at what point do we pick up the book and how did people at that time see the sea? How did they regard it?
1: Well, we, I think, put it the other way around, mm. we tend to think of the sea as something that separates us from other people. Yes. I and mean, I think sometimes the English think of the sea as our moat. Yes. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God we're separate from the <laughs> people on the other side. Um, but no, in this time, the sea is the connection. Right. The sea is what makes it possible to go from A to B easily.
4: So we have to turn our whole view on its head.
1: Absolutely. Sense. You okay. have to look at geography a totally different way. Mm. You can sit in a port like Ipswich and you're actually closer in time to Bergen in Norway than you are to somewhere in the south of England like London.
4: It's amazing. Because
1: yeah. it takes so long to get over the roads. It's mm. so difficult. It's, it's it's dangerous. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. You simply get in a boat and row
4: like that. Yes. <laughs> and, and you're there. Yes. OK. So people saw the sea as a conduit rather than a barrier. Yes. OK. Um, what, I mean, there's a whole range of things you talk about being transmitted over over the sea. I mean, the first one is money, I suppose, which you talk about. In what way did that emerge and how did it spread through these countries?
1: Well, the weird thing about, about money by the time you get to about the 7th century mm. is that it wasn't much in use. Mm. I mean, there was gold, but gold was an official currency and it sort of came out of the state and went back to the state. Yes. It was what you paid taxes with if you were a landowner. Um, What there wasn't was specie, stuff that you had in your pocket or in your purse with which you bought a cabbage at the market or you bought whatever you were dealing in, the wood or the the lumber or whatever. Um, And that's what was revived. And revived in one particular place more than anywhere else which we know because more coins were minted there. Mm. And that's oddly enough on the Dutch coast where Frisia once was. Okay. Um, and so it's a very North Sea phenomenon. But the other thing is, of course, that the Frisians could trade in shallow bottom boats mm. along the coast of the North Sea. Okay, So they could go really quite long distances into really quite different places rather easily, carrying with them money.
4: Yeah, OK. Um, something that's interesting to me is how did other peoples see the Frisians? How were how they regarded by other groups of people? Uh, drunk. <laughs> um,
1: they were said to have a very funny attitude to adultery as well. OK. And
4: <laughs> Drunk adulterers, <really. laughs> yeah, Well,
1: exactly. exactly. People of character. No, they, they were the traders. They were the traders. Right. OK. In fact, the word Frisian becomes the word for mm. a trader, a mm. merchant, somebody who's dealing in things across the water. OK. And the sea itself was known as the Frisian Sea before mm. it was known as the North Sea.
4: Because they were so important absolutely. to the story, they
1: were absolutely basic. They were trading right up into the south of Norway. Mm-hmm. Because we know, because there are houses that they had at a settlement called Kaupang up in Norway, mm-hmm. they were certainly trading as far down as the start of the English Channel, okay. and probably out to what's now
4: Southampton. So that's a huge range of. Oh, it's a huge area. range, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we should talk about in terms of a valuable thing that was traded was books. Um, where were these spread to and from, and how did that work? It's a complicated story because books
1: went everywhere. Books went across Europe from one place to another. So you have books that we know that that the Venerable Bede had Mm. in Jarrow in Northumbria, um, which had come from Sicily and went on to land up somewhere in Switzerland, you know, all in some time. But one of the key things that did happen was that the Saxons who moved into Britain were particularly associated with, with monasteries, with learning, and with missionary work, of course, which involved having texts. Yes. Um, so the texts that came into Britain went out again right. with the Saxons across Germany. So there is a curious sense in which the English may well have taught the Germans to read properly, which I think the Germans would probably resent quite a lot.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's lovely. Um, we will talk about books there. Um, we should talk about how we, in the present day, know about this story. I mean, how, how did you go about researching this vast, this vast story from a period that's known as the Dark Ages in a lot of... Things? But it's not the Dark Ages. Mm.
1: You have to read through what people mean you to see. That, that is the problem. I mean, you, you read an awful lot of Lives of Saints when you're doing a book like this, and you have to be very careful because there's not all that much you can discount. Okay. If somebody tells you the story of a miracle... You don't simply throw it away because there may well be the story of something else mm.
4: underlying it. It may tell you quite a lot. Okay. One of those stories, um, and forgive me if I forgot his name wrong, Auden, is that right? A U D U N? Yeah. Um, what's that story and what can that tell us? Instance... Auden and his
1: polar bear. Yes. Oh, yes,
4: yes absolutely. Auden was wonderful.
1: Auden was a chancer who, who lived in the western fjords of, of Iceland and got himself a polar bear. Okay. Polar bears, oddly enough, I mean, you, you think of exotic animals being given to important people, mm. and you think of rhinoceroses being schlepped across yes. to Rome. No, actually, polar bears and even walruses sometimes were, were brought to courts across the north and wow. south of Europe as gifts. Mm. And Orton thought that his polar bear would be really quite a good thing to take to a king uh, who th- would immediately give him enormous amounts of money. Mm. Why he thought this, the Lord knows. And also, <laughs> also the, the, the physical problems of actually schlepping a polar bear yeah. from Iceland to Norway oh and then overland, which is what he did, uh, down into Denmark yeah. were quite extraordinary. And unsurprisingly, by the time they got to Denmark, uh, the, it, Odin was starving and mm. the polar bear was starving and the polar bear was thinking of Odin as lunch. <laughs> so <that laughs> all of a sudden, there had to be a compromise. Yes. And Odin's plans didn't work out quite as he hoped. Mm. But it's... A, it's a curiosity because already the notion that there are exotic things in the north mm. is there and already there's the notion that you could exchange them for real power and real riches.
4: So this story teaches us that actually people saw the sea as a way to become rich and to expand their own horizons in a sense. They,
1: want, they thought that they would be, things would get better if there was contact.
4: Right. It's okay. a really
1: key thing. When you have people going from port to port, around an expanse of water. They cross cultures all the time. Mm -hmm. And we're used to thinking about that with the Mediterranean.
4: Yes. And we know
1: that, you know, Hesiod and Homer's sailors Mm -hmm. got to Gibraltar. Yeah. Uh, We know all of that stuff. But actually, the North Sea is an even more remarkable story because Mm -hmm. the Vikings, for example, apart from the fact that Dublin was their headquarters in the British Isles, apart from the fact that they got to America and Newfoundland, um, also got to Byzantium. Wow, where yeah. they were the hard, the emperor's hard men. They they <laughs> they were the bodyguards and everything else.
4: So we need to see the sea as as, as active as the south. Area was as well.
1: Yes, we yes. really do. Mm. We really do. It's true that we don't to have to rethink quite a lot of things if we do put that into the picture, mm. because there is this. T- I mean, I, I have a theory that actually it's because northern Europeans really like warm holidays, and so they'd much rather find culture well, ideally south of the Apennines uh, rather than rather than north. But the fact of the matter is that that it's the connection between the two mm. that created the cultures that we know as the Renaissance that created humanism, that created painting in oils. Mm.
4: So it's not talking about one at the expense of the other, it's talking about the interplay between the two, the it's two areas.
1: It's all about connection. Okay, It's yeah. all about connection.
4: So talking about some of the other things that were connected by these people kind of butting up against each other... Um, some of the other things are, are fashion, for instance. I
5: mean,
4: fashion is fascinating. <laughs> yes.
1: Any time you say fashion, you think of those wonderful sort of medieval manuscripts mm. with, with, with very, very straight-backed ladies with impossibly big tummies and impossibly high breasts and rather silly things on their heads. Yes. Fashion didn't start like that. Mm. Fashion started among a lot of roughs. on the docks in ports like Bergen. Mm, And they picked up their fashion ideas by going to, not exactly fashion shows, but sort of um, thug and (laughs) fisherman's conventions in places like Grimsby. Okay. And they would come back with ideas, and we know this from the sagas, mm. because the Icelandic sagas talk in the 11th and 12th century about people coming back from the north of England and being dandies and very proud of their style of clothing. And we know that in the Norwegian courts, for example, uh, people could be really socially cut out completely mm. for bring, wearing a kirtle of the wrong length.
4: You wouldn't have thought that necessarily, would you? It's you incredible. wouldn't have thought
1: that no. at all. I, no. mean, you, I, mean, do, I mean, do you associate Icelandic sagas with anything except blood and dragons? Yeah,
4: not, <laughs> certainly not fashion. You would have said. Exactly. No, exactly. Yes. Um, and the, the other thing that interested me is the idea of the changing of people's kind of not value so much, but their manners and their cultures and their traditions. Um, can we see this story as really shaping the cultures that we know today?
1: We can certainly see some parts of it. I mean, take take one simple, well, not simple question at all, but one fairly straightforward one, which is money. Mm. If you start using money habitually across frontiers, across languages and all other things. It becomes, your la- it becomes somehow your language for making things equivalent. Okay. But that's like writing an equation, mm. that's mathematics. Mm. You are saying this load of timber equals this load of wine uh, equals this amount of silver that I happen to have in my pocket. Okay. And you're working it out all the time, you're doing that kind of abstract thinking. And I'm convinced that that has a great deal to do with the development of the very first attempts at what we now recognize as the beginnings of modern science.
4: OK. Um, so we can, So what sort of science are we talking about in that? But we're talking about
1: looking at rainbows and trying to work out what they are. Uh, we're talking about any way of looking at the world which involves putting mathematics into right. it. Right,
4: OK. So it's about applying these laws to the world around you Absolutely. as you see it. And the other thing, of course, is that
1: at that time, if you, if you happened to be in one of the newly founded universities and teaching, mm. um, it's been estimated that you spent about half your time Worrying about money. I mean, things mm. never change. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but really, I mean, you, mm. you, you had you had to get the money out of the students. Yeah, you had yeah. you had to work out how much money you were getting out of them. You had to manage the whole life of the university for money. Mm. Um, and curiously enough, I mean, even more than today.
4: So what sort of period are we talking?
1: We're talking twelve. We're talking thirteenth century. It's far back as that. 14th yeah. oh, yes, yeah. yes. And by the fourteenth century, it's pretty obvious. I think you can go further back than that, to the start of Oxford and
4: Paris and so on. OK. One thing is also punctuation, the way in which language was used. (laughs) Punctuation is wonderful because, of course, we owe it to the Irish. We
1: really owe a great debt to the Irish because everybody else, not everybody else, but many other peoples, spoke some language which was related to Latin. Mm. So if you read it aloud, you could work out what was going on. Okay. And you would understand And if you saw it on the page, you would understand. And, of course, things were designed to be read aloud, not necessarily to be read privately. Mm. But if you don't speak Latin, and it really is just letters on the page, and you don't have the expectation of words ending in A or AM or whatever, Mm. uh, you need some help. And breaking up the words and then punctuating the sentences so that you divided one idea from another Mm. was an Irish invention because they didn't have Latin as their first language.
4: See, that's incredible, and that's something I didn't know, and that's something that I think runs throughout this whole book, is that this story has been neglected in some senses. Why do you think that is?
1: I don't think it's been neglected. I think think what happens is that if you are a medieval specialist Mm. and you're working on a set of texts, it is an unbelievably complicated exercise. Mm. Um, the, the, The editing of these texts, the establishing of the texts they're working out of what they mean or what they can possibly be talking about yes. sometimes. Yes. And I think the tendency is for this to become a very specialised activity. OK. And the great luxury that somebody like me has is that I can come in and read over the whole subject.
4: Right, OK. So it's about fitting all of these things together into one overarching story.
1: Trying to see what happened, yes. Mm. Um,
4: and, and so what can the archaeological evidence tell us?
1: Uh, very often that the documents are nonsense, which is a little bit alarming, <laughs> because it would be nice to have a few trustworthy documents. But, but <laughs> just one or two. Yeah, just a few. Will be <laughs> had, yeah, I mean, but you, you keep finding mm. depth of things that happened in particular places that you would never, ever have known about. OK. okay. There's, there's one illustration, it's, 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 it's in the book, a place called Domberg in the Netherlands. Right, um, which is a perfectly ordinary beach with kids and ice cream and all the good things about a beach. Mm. Uh, you would never guess that in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, when there were high storms and terrible tides and great winds, the sea pulled back mm. and revealed all manner of things, but different things. Okay. First of all, a Roman history... That nobody had ever bothered to write about mm. in Latin, because the Romans didn't do provinces, as you know. Mm. <clears throat> they and West 11. Uh, the, 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 absolutely the same thing. Um, a Roman trading port of great importance, a goddess nobody had ever heard of, wow. temples that nobody knew about, um, but clearly showing because of the number of people who were saying thank you in the temples for trading voyages that had gone very well. This was a big trading centre. Mm. Oof, oh, disappears. We don't quite know why. It might have been pirates. It might have been weather. We don't know. Okay. With then, all of a sudden, the sea rolls back again, and there's a line of posts which look like the foundations of wooden shacks on the shore. There was a trading post there in the 5th, 6th centuries, uh, a trading post which was obviously very important because those trading posts were. I mean, there were places on the coast which, which did all sorts of things like gathering customs and pushing goods in and out. Um, then, again, the sea comes back, and there is a cluster of coffins on the sand oh. in a star shape. OK. Each one with, with, with grave goods on them, so they can't be Christian. Um, possibly Viking, we're not quite sure. But again... This is a history that doesn't exist no. without the archaeological evidence. And that's just one site? That's one site. Yeah. And that's three different histories mm. that just get revealed by the accident of the sea pulling back at the right moment. You know.
4: So amid all these discoveries, what was the thing that surprised you the most in the course of writing this book?
1: I developed a... First of all, I think I went into this like anybody who's not a medievalist, mm. and I thought, oh my God, the Middle Ages, oh, here we go again. Dark Ages, wretched times, superstition, I bet they were all completely idiotic. And, and you, we, we do, we have this terrible mm. built-in sense of superiority to the Middle Ages. Well, that gets knocked out of you in about 10 minutes (laughs) when you start actually trying to find out something about it. Yes, And and you realise that what was going on was very sophisticated, but it's part of the whole process and made Mm. possible what we think is sophisticated.
4: Right, Okay. Um, We should talk about the ways in which the sea uh, spread, negative things, I suppose, perhaps, like the plague. Um, What impact did that have uh, in, in... the nations that kind of bordered the sea. Oh,
1: enormous! Mm. If you read the Daily Mail today, and you read it on the subject of shirkers and workshy persons, and um, nasty benefit scroungers, almost all of that we owe, oddly enough, to the regulations that that, that started after the Black Death. Sounds bizarre, but it is actually true. Okay. This is the point at which people start talking about people panic. Mm. There aren't enough people alive to do all the work that's required. That people know about famine as well as disease, so they really worry about what the fields are going to produce and why are there going to be enough people to do it. And when that happens, they start changing the law. Right. And they start changing the law to control poor people and working people as closely and as tightly as they can. And they develop this whole vocabulary. It's in Piers Plowman, after all. This whole vocabulary for, for, for putting down people who won't do what they're told. Okay. And they start passing laws to make damn sure they do or they go to jail.
4: Mm. So it's driven by the fear caused by the plague, in a sense. It's
1: driven by the consequences of the
4: plague. Right. Okay. You write that uh, this is a way of thinking, again, about who we really are. Mm. Um, what misapprehensions do you think that people have about this whole story and this whole period that you'd like to perhaps see this book changing?
1: Well, I suppose there's one thing, which is how we think about Europe. Mm. I mean, we ha- when we have official heroes... In the European Union. They tend to be people like that abominable old slave driver, Charlemagne, whose entire empire was, was funded on the slave trade to the Middle East, mm. and whose whose main activity was behaving exactly like the Vikings he disapproved of by raiding, stealing, taxing and murdering, you know. Mm. Um, now I think we probably can do better for heroes than that. Okay. We want our heroes to be in the centre, forget it. Mm. I'm not interested in kings and emperors. They are, of course, enormously important. What they do matters a great deal. But I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in what happens on the periphery, on the outskirts, Mm. because that's where the energy was. Right. The great changes are beginning along those coasts with individual traders going out in small boats and taking with them accidentally everything from money to plague Mm. um, uh, as they go. Mm. But that's where the energy of change
4: is. Mm. So who stands out for you as a hero, or heroes from this story? Oh, I have several. I actually
1: ended up with the venerable bead as a hero. OK. At university, I was forced to read The Venomous Bead, The Venomous (laughs) Bead, as we all remember. Um, Joke, joke. Um, And I hated him. What bore. Mm. I suddenly discovered what else he'd written apart from the history of England. And all these amazing attempts to think out what it would be to have a scientific experiment I mean, he wants to work on, for example, the time of the tides around the British coast. And he wants to relate that to the phases of the moon. And he wants to see how they're related. Hey, that's an experiment. Mm. That's something more than a thought experiment, too. It means getting in a lot of data and treating it carefully and coming to a conclusion. Now, he didn't come to the right conclusion, but that's neither here nor there. Um, And he does this on a number of things, particularly because of that great medieval thing of the problem of working out the date of Easter. Right, yeah. Not only was it difficult, you had to do it a long way in advance so you didn't know where any of the other feasts were going to fall either. And also, at the time, you could only do baptisms and, and you could only do certain ceremonies uh, at either Easter or Whitsun. So you really had to know when this was going to happen. Mm. Um, and he developed a very sophisticated mathematics for the time. Of, of working out the date of Easter. Not something we would think of as the end of scientific inquiry, but it is a kind of scientific inquiry already. Mm. And to sit... This is a man who almost never left the monastery to which he was sent by his parents when he was six years old. Almost never. Mm. We would know only one time, actually, that he went out even on a study tour or anywhere else. And yet, in those walls, with just those books, he could imagine the questions that he could ask about the world. I think that's wonderful.
4: It's pretty incredible, isn't it? It yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Um, any other heroes?
1: Well, actually, another scientist... No, another ecclesiastical scientist, actually. Um, Robert Gristester. OK. Who was bishop of here, there and everywhere. And and, and and was used as an ecclesiastical lawyer in Hereford and a troublemaker in Lincoln. Wonderful troublemaker, by the way. What kind of things? Oh, well, he he... At one point he was lumbered with a large number of Italian priests, which he didn't want because he kept pointing out that the Italian priests were jolly good in French and therefore they could talk to the upper classes. But there was no point in the lower classes coming along with confession because the Italian priests wouldn't understand a word of it. (laughs) And this turned out to be true. Um, However, he was still lumbered with them, so he finally went down on his knees in front of them And started making his confession in English, louder and louder and louder, (laughs) beating his breast until they retreated in a great deal of embarrassment. (laughs) And he had
4: no more problems with Italian priests. That's that's quite good. (laughs) Um, So what else did he get up to? What other things were there? He became a priest quite late Mm -hmm. in life, we
1: think. Um, And on the way along, he starts almost something, it's it's not experimental science, but it's instead of simply going to experience. And saying that's what I've seen. Mm. You try to set up a situation in which you will see okay. things, yes, um, which is a really big difference. And he does that again with rainbows. A lot of his thinking about colour and the, the, what happens to a pri- when light passes through a prism didn't actually get improved on until Newton. Wow! So you're talking about you know 1250s to 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 end of the 17th century, mm. um, and again, it's it's it's, it's somebody's curiosity about the world yes there's something about the way we i think we think of the medieval mind as shut it's the exact opposite Hmm. it's just that there were things they had to be curious about that we can google
4: you know that's true yes and so the sea in a sense opened people's minds to being curious about what was happening over its horizons over its borders absolutely
1: all the great early fashion books for example are about what people wear in other countries Yes, OK. And they're about imitating what people wear in other countries. OK. And people always got the blame for it, too. There's a, there's a wonderful English quote, which luckily I can't do verbatim, which basically says that fashion, like the pox, comes from France.
4: <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, so people were genuinely curious in the things that are happening in other, in other nations.
1: Exactly. Well, they had to be. Yes. Otherwise, yes. they wouldn't be trading. Otherwise, they wouldn't be getting in what they wanted. No,
4: that's
1: true. I'll tell you how extraordinary that is. In one archaeological dig in Elgo, in, in, in Sweden, they discovered a Buddha, an 8th century Buddha from Kashmir. Nobody can even make sense of the trading connections that could have brought it there. You know, Because you, you have a band of, of, of Islamic traders who wouldn't deal in images. Um, we don't know of Jewish traders who were going to Kashmir, though they may have been, um, who brought it there but it's there, mm. and it's in the right layer, and we know it's 8th century, and it has a twin in a museum
4: in Kashmir. That's incredible, it's mm. amazing. Um, if you could somehow travel back in time to this period and ask someone involved in this huge story a question, what kind what of question would you ask? I would find it very difficult
1: to find one person to ask. What I would love to do is to go into a village in the middle of Flanders or Frisia or England or anywhere in the 12th century and find out what people knew about things. Because mm. it's still the mysterious thing. What did they know? Yeah, They were pretty shrewd about a lot of things like, for example, cures for the plague. There's one lunatic one, which is actually the f- Teliac, which gives us the word treacle, which started off as a cure for, for snake bite. And we started off with a bit of snake venom and added about 93 other things and ended up with something, as I say, which we would now call treacle. It worked. And they weren't stupid because it actually contained so much laudanum, so much opium, that it would, in fact, have given you relief from pain. Mm. It would, in fact, have calmed down a lot of the symptoms. And it might, in fact, have made the whole process tolerable. I've given you a holiday from things. So at one level, of course it's stupid. I mean, why are you starting with viper venom, for goodness sake, to cure plague? At another level, it's not stupid at all. Mm. Pragmatically, they'd found something that yes. actually worked. So the question is, what do they know? Yeah. What did people actually in the village on the street know? Yeah. I would love to know more about that, and I, I would love to find a way to find it out.
4: That's cool. That leads nicely to my next question, which is, what was the biggest challenge in writing this book?
1: Not being stupid, because if you've only got a limited number of texts, Mm -hmm. it's quite difficult to cross-read and double-check. Yes. If you've got any number of 17th-century letters, then you can make sure you're not being totally stupid by sampling things which were written at the same time by the same sort of people, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's trickier with this limited amount of survival. One of the problems is that stuff survives for a good reason. Okay. You know, not all documents survive. They survived because people thought it was worthwhile filing them. You know, so a cathedral that wants people to know about its title to a bit of land is going to be very careful to keep the charters very carefully in a good, dry place. Yes. <laughs> but, but if it's a love letter or an order for two tonnes of coal, it's not going to happen. No. Okay. Um, so there's a sampling effect which can distort everything. Mm. And the really interesting question is how do you compensate for that? Yeah. And as I say, the only thing I think you can do is to try to read the documents that do survive, first of all against the archaeological record, because sometimes clearly things just aren't right. Mm. Bede's story of the Saxons coming in and sweeping the Britons across, you know, Caractacus' last stand on the British camp in Malvern. Turns out, unfortunately, to be a Norman fort, but we won't worry about that. (laughs) Um, Move on from that. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, All of these wonderful stories turn out to be nonsense. Mm. Look at the DNA. The DNA was muddled long before the invasions. And right. if you look at the skull size, it doesn't change until after the Norman Conquest, because apparently when, when the Normans arrived, we got bigger heads. Hmm. Fascinating <laughs> detail. <laughs> um,
4: and finally, I mean, I suppose, if you could leave readers with a changed impression of the sea and the time and the people, what would that be?
1: The sea connects us and everything happens through connections. We live in a world which is still obsessed with a very 19th-century idea of nationalism. We sit in our categories, we have different names on our passports, we cross frontiers, all the rest of it. That's not how history happens. It happens in a much more ramshackle way. Mm. The order is imposed by human beings, not by these accidental institutions. And it's that fact that connection is what changes us, what
6: makes us alive. That was Michael Pye. The Edge of the World, How the North Sea Made Us, is out now, published by Viking. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor,
2: Emma McFarland. A new DNA study proves, quote, beyond reasonable doubt, that the remains discovered underneath a Leicester car park in 2012 are those of the last Plantagenet king, Richard III. According to a team of researchers at the University of Leicester, The latest analysis of all available evidence, quote, confirms identity of King Richard III to the point of 99.999% at its most conservative. The researchers collected DNA from living relatives of Richard III and analysed several genetic markers, including the complete mitochondrial genomes inherited through the maternal line and Y-chromosomal markers, inherited through the paternal line, from both the skeletal remains and the living relatives. The mitochondrial genome shows a genetic match between the skeleton and the maternal line relatives. Dr. Turi King from the University of Leicester Department of Genetics said the research, quote, closes an over 500-year-old missing persons case. However, Michael Hicks, the recently retired Head of History at the University of Winchester, called into question the conclusions drawn from the study. He told History Extra, quote, I don't think this research carries us any further forward. It tells us that the two modern relatives share the same mitochondrial DNA as the bones, not that the bones belong to Richard III. You can read this story in full at historyextra.com. In other news, a vast medieval city has been uncovered in Salisbury without any digging, At the 11th century Old Sarum in Wiltshire, experts used the latest scanning techniques to reveal a network of buildings, including a series of large structures, possibly defences, with open areas of ground behind. Having surveyed the land, the University of Southampton team has drawn up a detailed plan of the medieval city. The university's director of archaeological prospection services, Christian Strutt, told BBC News... Archaeologists and historians have known for centuries that there was a medieval city at Old Sarum, but until now there has been no proper plan of the site. Our survey shows where individual buildings are located, and from this we can piece together a detailed picture of the urban plan within the city walls. You can read interesting facts about Old Sarum at historyextra.com. Meanwhile, French researchers claim to have found evidence that Coco Chanel worked as a spy for the Nazis during the Second World War. According to the Daily Mail, a written record made public for the first time in a documentary broadcast on French television on Monday night is said to prove that the late fashion designer was a member of Adolf Hitler's secret military intelligence agency. According to the documentary, The Shadow of a Doubt, while working for the Nazis, Chanel went by the code name Westminster, a reference to her affair with the Duke of Westminster in the 1920s. It is also said that she exploited a friendship with Winston Churchill to try to negotiate a truce in 1943. Thanks, Emma. And
6: now we have a short advertisement break.
4: I'm Dr. Sam Willis and I'm here to tell you about the Navy Records Society. The Navy Records Society has been publishing volumes on British naval history for over a century and has produced over 150 books. Members receive an annual volume as well as online access to every one of the Society's books which cover over a thousand years of British naval history. Members also receive access to the Society's amazing online miscellany of sketchbooks, charts, photo albums, diaries, even audio recordings. From the Armada to Nelson, from Jutland to the Fleet Air Arm, there is something here for anyone with an interest in naval history. Join the Navy Records Society for just £40 a year at navyrecords.org.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
3: And learn to process it, so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash/historyextra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel historyextra
1: Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
6: Before our next interview, I'd like to quickly mention our next reader events, which are taking place in March next year. On the 21st and 22nd of the month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. Flagfen in Peterborough is the only place in the world where original Bronze Age timbers can be seen in their original location, giving a unique insight into life in Britain 3,500 years ago. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, paid a visit to Flag Fen in the company of Francis Pryor, a former expert on Channel 4's Time Team, to find out more about the site's significance.
0: Okay, so Francis, we've come to Flag Fen um, in Peterborough. Um, obviously, quite a special place for you because you actually found it, didn't you? you discovered it back in the 80s. Um, tell me what we're looking at, at here.
5: Well, this is the preservation hall, as we call it and um, it's the only place in the world where you can see prehistoric timbers still in place as they were left um, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. And you can see, you can hear the water dripping from our um, sprinkler system. Um, You can see the posts, those are Bronze Age posts. Those posts date to about, I don't know, 12, 1100 BC. Um, the taller ones are mostly oak, yeah. and that oak would have been growing on the dry land about, I don't know, three, four miles away, because it will not grow in the fens. And then down below us here, you can see horizontal wood. Mm-hmm. Well, this is part of a huge walkway. And we put the preservation hall over this great walkway, uh, which we call the post alignment, which is composed of five rows of posts. In all, there are about 60,000 posts. So, um, you know, it's quite a big thing.
0: Yes, huge.
5: And it runs for um, just over a kilometre. And the surface was made out of these large timbers you can see lying here, which were then covered with brushwood. Mm -hmm. And to stop people sliding around in the winter, if you look down there, you can see there's lots of sand and gravel. So that would have been mined on the dry land on either side of Flag Fen and bought out here and sprinkled every time it rained and, 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 and it started getting slidy. So all of that has been put there. And someone once said, oh, how do you know it wasn't washed there?
0: Yeah, yeah, So I was thinking.
5: I know. Well, look, you can see those gravel pebbles down there. You can see a lot of gravel pebbles yes. in with the sand. Well, we've had... Um, a scientific analysis of those sands and gravels and that by the size of those pebbles it would take something like a tsunami to actually carry that sort of weight and of course it's com- that's completely out of the question and out here yeah. so uh, it's all been deliberately put there and um, one of the things that proves it is in amongst that sand and gravel we sometimes find neolithic so that's pre-bronze age flint implements that were dug up in the Bronze Age when they were quarrying the gravel from Neolithic sites on the edge of Flag Fen. So I think that's the earliest evidence in Britain we've got for people inadvertently destroying archaeological sites. It's something we're much better at today.
0: So you could say there are earliest archaeologists really, I suppose. (laughs) Well,
5: no, no, there are earliest developers.
0: (laughs) And So, I mean, probably the most obvious question is, is what what was it for? I mean, this is this huge structure.
5: Yeah. Well, um, it follows the line of a Neolithic road. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that from excavations we did some time ago. Um, And it was a route. It was a trackway. I mean, no doubt about that. But it, it was much more than that. It was a barrier It was a boundary, and then there was something quite extraordinary that happened right across Britain, round about 1500 BC. In my book *Home*, I call that the uh, domestic revolution. Basically, the old sites like Stonehenge and all the barrows and and the the, the, the huge centralised sites that attracted people from hundreds of miles away—they were abandoned. And you have a new set of religious beliefs come into play where people make offerings to water. And they make their offerings at places like flagfen. We now know of two or three other examples of flagfens in Britain, although not well, you know, as well preserved or as complete as this. And so basically, what I think you're looking at is the beginnings of local... Government.
0: Right, that, that far back.
5: That far back. I think Flagfen would have been the Bronze Age equivalent of a parish church or well, actually probably even a cathedral because it is very large and very elaborate. Um, and as I, I used to like to remind the Bishop of... Peterborough when he occasionally made visits here but he was a newcomer (laughs) (laughs) but but, but the things that were done here you know they were offering swords daggers spearheads all of them sort of symbols of rank which they would break and offer to the water sometimes smashing the edges of swords against stones but we also find for example complete sets of metal workers tools Mm -hmm. and I would imagine that was a ceremony where a young man Became a smith. You know, he 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 passed his apprenticeship, and so they had a little ceremony here. And then I imagine there are a lot of things um, that uh, generally go with women, things like, for example, bracelets. Mm -hmm. Um, We find shale bracelets, we find jet bracelets, uh, we find uh, beads, Um, we've got a, a, a small fragment of a gold composite earring which is made in a very strange way and you can find exact parallels for it in Switzerland.
0: Okay.
5: Um, so some of this stuff is very exotic. It represents both sexes, men and women. Uh, children too. There are some things like this little miniature sword which I'm convinced was a child's thing, because it's an exact replica of a a man's sword but a quarter of a size. Uh, And there are other things which are toys. So I think what's going on here are what you'd find in a modern Christian church. Birth, marriages, death, and other things like the apprenticeships and I don't know, maybe when a, when a man got hold of a new bull or something, they'd make some appropriate offering. But there are quite a few dog sacrifices. Dogs, Yeah, dog bones found here. Yeah. Um,
0: so this really would have been sort of the centre of the community then, this, this type of place? Yes,
5: I think so. And for people living round about. And that's how it differs from the age of Stonehenge, when people were coming in from much further afield. Yes. But you see, then I think British society was in, still in its pioneering phase. And it needed things like sites like Stonehenge to act as glue to hold society together. by this period, by um, the middle and late Bronze Age, by 1500 BC, the landscape was fully developed. There was a network of roads that covered Britain. you know uh, uh, rivers were being um, navigated. I mean, uh, next door to flag at must farm. They excavated. Um, a length of the River Neen, and in just 250 metres, found no less than nine Bronze Age boats, all of which have been abandoned there. So I mean, though, Bronze Age rivers would have been the equivalent today of motorways. Yeah. They would have been, you know, packed with people. Um, and the other thing no, that they, they, they had fish weirs, so people were eating eels, um, freshwater fish, sturgeon. We know that from the bones we've found. So. You know, sometimes people describe the Bronze Age as as an era of subsistence agriculture, which implies, you know, that you've got a a family with um, maybe a couple of dozen sheep and a a couple of moth-eaten old cattle. No, it was nothing like that. Farming was already very intensive. All the evidence we've got from land on the edge of Fen, where we have actually discovered complete field systems... Where we found the yards where they actually handled the sheep, I know, as a sheep farmer, that those handling systems, they're called drafting races and things like that, are intended to handle hundreds, not dozens of sheep. And in some cases, I think they would have even have dealt with thousands. I mean, you're talking huge flocks and large herds. and you know, we're not talking about subsistence agriculture. These aren't people scratching a living. These are very prosperous, civilised people.
0: Yeah, and that's very at odds with the, the usual view of, of people in, in this period, isn't it? It's very different.
5: Well, yes, I think this is something that we've got to really get across to people. And I'm so excited now that prehistory is part of the national curriculum. Mm. You know, if we can get a generation of youngsters who realise that prehistory isn't something that unimportant that happened before the Romans. You know, prehistory, this period, the Bronze Age, is when Britain was invented.
0: Yeah, not in when the way. Romans...
5: No, the Romans are an afterthought.
0: Yes, yes. So just explain, these. Um, you, we've got the walkway, but these vertical posts, yeah. is, is this how it would have looked? Would they have had something over them? How, you know, why are they sort of... in? As
5: they are. Yeah, uh, when we first found them, we thought, oh, maybe we've got a bridge. Mm. But then we found the floor, and the floor is in place. And you can see there's a big um, quarter-split oak tree trunk there. Well, when we excavated that, it was pegged in position by no less than 16 separate pegs. So there's no way that it's collapsed from a higher level. That is its level. And we have found some of these vertical posts which have been pulled out of the ground, and so they're intact. And that's why the ones we've painted on the walls here are, what, 12 feet high, something like that. That's based on good solid evidence. So basically, it was a marker. In wintertime, the walkway would have been under six inches a foot, maybe two foot of water. And so you needed these posts to mark the way across. But more than that, I think it was also a boundary. Because when you get to the dry land, which is a kilometer um, in that direction, um, what happens is that you find that all the objects which are being carefully placed in, in and amongst the posts then spread out on the dry land, and they don't go on, the open fen side of the posts. They don't extend there at all. And the only object, if it is an object, that we found on the far side of the posts was a human skeleton. Do
0: you know what I was going to ask? Actually, did you find any human? remains? You mentioned the objects.
5: Yeah, we find uh, the occasional loose human bone, you know, jaws and things like that. We haven't found a complete skelly um, I'm not surprised. I think people were buried in their community. So
0: this was a, a kind of a, a, a it wasn't a burial site then.
5: No, this marked their passage to the next world.
0: Right. Okay.
5: Um, and so, if you think about water, symbolically, it's very important. Um, nowadays, we all know what we look like. I mean, I don't know how many times we look in mirrors, but dozens <laughs> of times a day. Yeah. Right. In the Bronze Age, you couldn't do that. There weren't any mirrors. And if you wanted to see what your face looked like, you had to find still water. And that was one reason, I think, why these clear spring pools often became shrines and people would make offerings to the water. It's because people could see their own reflections. And it's, it's of interest that the very first mirrors, which happened around about 500 BC, in Britain are found in women's graves and very high status women so it's quite often the case when you get an innovation it's the rich and powerful who get hold of it first and they must have been cherished they must have been so important to people suddenly you know what you look like but then you can see your reflection in still water but you also know that if you go below that still water and breathe, you drown. So it's a, sim- a symbol of you, as you can see yourself, but it's also a symbol of death.
0: Yeah, I mean, it must have been very powerful, then I'd imagine to...
5: Oh, very powerful. I mean, one of the things we know about the Bronze Age is that they had their ceremonies in, I hate the, the, the jargon word, but there is only one word, in liminal mm-hmm. zones. Liminal means at the boundary. From the Latin word limen, meaning a boundary. So they went to places like Flag Fen. It's liminal. You couldn't live out here. You know, it's a watery wilderness in some respects. And it is, you know, Seahenge is another site like that. That was right on the edge of the sea. And I mean, it was really quite scary digging that. And there's another site, another case I can think of is the Iceman. In, in, in North Italy, Utsi he's called. Oh yes, yes, I've heard
0: of him. And
5: he was found well above the snow line. Well, you know, the, the conventional view is that he was robbed by robbers and that sort of thing. I think that's utter rubbish. I think he was a sacrifice, wow. high above the snow line, just as the waterlogged bodies that are found in the bogs of Northern Europe and in Britain, um, Lindo man in the British Museum. They are sacrifices. And this poor chap in Switzerland had been bashed on the head and he'd been shot in the back with an arrow. Yeah. So in other words, killed more than once. And that's exactly what we find with the Iron Age bog bodies, which are killed more than once. So it's all part of the ritual moving from our world to the world of the ancestors.
0: I mean, it's just incredible to think that we're looking at sort of wood that's thousands and thousands of years old. I mean, um, how, I mean obviously it's, you keep it wet, um, that's, that's how it survives, I assume. Would it always stay like this? Is it in, is it in danger? Is it you know?
5: Well, Flag Fen is in danger because um, it's drying out. Yeah. So this little bit here will probably be safe, yeah. if, you know, if we can keep on getting it wet. And I constructed, back in the 80s, a large lake to keep... The very centre of Flag Fen, wet. I think you know, I'm really pleased I did that, because yeah, yeah. it's been drying out rapidly ever since. So we've got this huge lake, um, and now I'm delighted to say that the whole of Flag Fen has been scheduled as an ancient monument, protected by law. Um, now that won't stop it drying out. You know, it's like as King Canute discovered. You can't keep the water yeah, back. No, no, no. <laughs> <It's always great. laughs> But um, at least, you know, we know that the, the timbers in, in the lake are now completely safe. This is the dike where we actually found the site. Oh,
0: OK. That's so where walk- started. I
5: was walking along this side. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been interested in the Roman road. Because There's a Roman road that runs from the far side of Peterborough right across the fens to Norfolk. And it was constructed in AD 60 as part of the suppression of... Boudican, boudiccan revolt. Yeah. It was to get troops from the West Country to East Anglia, sharpish. Um, and I wanted to see a section of the Roman road cut by this dike, this drainage dike, this big old drainage dike. Yeah. And when I was walking back from photographing and recording the drainage dike, I stumbled on a piece of wood on the ground about sort of five, 50 yards from here. Where you can see those bushes now, and I pulled it out of the mud and picked it up. Hello, I think we got. (laughs) Wait a minute, I'm hold. No, we got. This is great. There's a group of primary school children in their (laughs) Bronze Age cloaks. (laughs) I think that's absolutely excellent because the prehistory has only just come on the national curriculum. Yeah. And I'm so pleased it's happened. I really am. They definitely am.
0: seem to be embracing it, don't
5: they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, look at that. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I found the site, as I say, uh, those bushes over there. Mm-hmm. And I picked up, basically, I caught my foot on a bit of wood, picked it up, and it was the tip of a stake, a big oak stake. I was yeah. able to recognise it as oak. And it had been split. It was a quarter split. And again that made me suspicious because it didn't have saws in the Bronze Age so you used to split the wood. Right. And it had been sharpened with a narrow bladed axe about an inch and a half wide with a very dis- when you felt it, the marks, the axe marks, they were slightly dished, spoon-shaped, as if it had been hacked out with a, a huge teaspoon. And I recognized them as once as late Bronze Age axe marks. And um, then we slid down the side of a dike. Yeah. Because it was all muddy and s- s- smelly. wild. Yeah. <laughs> and there was some horizontal wood sticking out. And that stopped me going into the water. And the horizontal wood was a metre below the bottom of the Roman road. Wow. And we know that the peat here grows at about a millimetre a year. And that meant it had to be... That wood had to be a millennium earlier.
0: It must have been so exciting to literally stumbled across.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were looking for sites, but to come across something like that, it is a once-in-a-lifetime. Yeah. It really is a once-in-a-lifetime discovery. And quite
0: by chance, really. You say you're looking for, for sites. I
5: think I think informed chance. Yeah. I think the art of archaeology is to manipulate Chance. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. got to know where to look and yes, where not true. to look.
0: and But you need to obviously be able to recognise things when you when, when you find, when you find them. So, that's yeah. the other
5: thing. Yes. No. 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 I mean, it, it was. Of course, it was chance. Yeah. But you know, it's it's funny that, that 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 it was found by people who knew what they were looking for.
0: Yes. Yeah.
5: Definitely. shall we have a look inside the Bronze Age house? Yes,
0: please. Yes. Now, it's under a bit of repair at the moment by a list of things. Is that, is that the, something to do with the weather, or...?
5: Yes, that, that that's due to old age. Um, we this, this roof is about 15 years old. Um, it hasn't been repaired. It hasn't been... The, the main thing is, in the Bronze Age, it would have been maintained yeah. by the family living there, yes. just as you look after your own house. Um, and it, it's, it's... you. We, we've taken off. It, it is originally a, a turfed roof, so <coughs> here you can see the thatch. Mm-hmm. But on top of the thatch, there would be they, they, we're going to replace a layer of turf, okay? Um, cut, you know, from the from the meadows.
0: That must have kept it quite warm inside yes. then. The yeah, turf.
5: It, yeah, the turf keeps it keeps mm. it insulated, mm. and that's why the roof isn't as steep as a thatched house. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Okay, a thatched house has a, has a forty-five degree pitch. This is about thirty-five degrees, and um, we were able to work out the pitch of the roof from the posts on the inside. Um, get a pretty good idea, anyhow. Yeah. So, if we want to go into the house,
0: yes,
5: <laughs> there we go. Here Thank we you. Go.
0: It's quite spacious,
5: isn't
0: it, in here? Yes, I mean is this it, is this a sort of average size for a
5: for a Bronze Age house. Mm. Yes. Um, uh, it, it's, it's pretty well average. Yeah. is Maybe on the larger side. I don't know. about no, Right. Um, the main thing about this is that the floor area of this house is larger than the floor area that was allocated uh, to its workforce by the Great Northern Railway when they were building houses in Peterborough in 1850.
0: Backwards
5: and <laughs> <laughs> well, admittedly, they were on two floors, but um, yes, yes. But, but it, it, it's a very, it's a very usable space. Mm. Um, and uh, people always say, how many people would have lived in here? Well, of course, we don't know. But no. um, I would estimate that you would have had parents and their children, and possibly grandparents too. Yes. Um, we know how they were laid out and organised. So the doorway would have faced south and then the food and stuff was prepared around the central half and then uh, people ate and sort of led their daily lives on the south side so basically the organisation of the building is following the rotation of the sun so as the sun goes to the south and then round to the west um the Opposite the doorway, Mm -hmm. on the west side of the house, sorry, on the uh, uh, north side of the house, would have been where the most important person in the household would have sat. Um, You know, uh, in Victorian times, it would have been the man. Mm -hmm. In Bronze Age times, Celtic society, it might well have been the grandma. And then on the north side north and uh, uh, east side here, um, that's where people slept. And whenever we find bodies, and occasionally you do find burials um, on Iron Age and Bronze Age houses, they're always on the side of sleep, of darkness on the the north side. So, um, you know, they were well laid out. Then you've got to imagine, um, now the the roof here is largely missing, but you've got to imagine that um, there would have been hams and Sturgeon and eels hanging up there, which would have been smoking in the yeah. smoke from the fire. Um, I mean, you know, the Bronze Age diet would have been pretty good, thank you very quite much. quite healthy, yes, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. tasty, more to the point, I
0: think. <laughs> <laughs> and. Where, is, where would have been the nearest settlement to here? So I, well, there wouldn't be any houses around this... No, this not area. around
5: Flag Fen. No. The nearest settlement, well, we know it, because we excavated it in the 70s, is in Peterborough, mm-hmm. which is um, about 800 metres in that direction to the east.
0: Yeah.
5: I mean, to the west. I'm sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm disorientated <laughs> to the west. Um, and... Today, it's all factories there. And there's a huge power oh, station. So we, the ones we
2: drove past. The, yeah. Yeah,
5: and uh, the, that's what I excavated in the 1970s. And so this house here is based on one that I excavated in the right. 1970s. And so this whole landscape here is the dry land landscape, yeah. the one we've reconstructed. So if you want to walk out into a Bronze Age field...
0: And would the houses have been... Would they have been built close together as like a little community or...?
5: Um, no, that's very interesting. They don't actually... Um, start building houses together um, around here until the Iron Age. Right. In the Bronze Age, that the, the houses tend to be spread amongst the fields. Right, OK. Um, and what's interesting is that the houses are very carefully spread amongst the fields and they're not at random. And this leads us to think that individual family holdings were marked out by roadways in the fields
6: that was charlotte hodgman and francis Pryor on location at flag Fen. francis's latest book is home a time Traveller's tales from britain's prehistory published earlier this year by alan lane in the uk and the us you can read an article by charlotte and francis in the christmas issue of bbc history magazine which is now on sale Also in this month's edition, we explore the controversial reign of Mary Tudor, we examine the mindset of kamikaze pilots, we introduce some of Egypt's most influential female pharaohs, and we highlight our Books of the Year for 2014. You can get hold of the magazine in all good newsagents and digitally. And now is also a great time to take out a subscription. If you're in the UK, you'll get to choose a fantastic free history book when you subscribe including new accounts of the Wars of the Roses, Thomas Cromwell and Waterloo. To take advantage of this deal, please visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, and it will only be available for a few more weeks. And if you're interested in checking out our digital edition, then for this weekend only, you'll be able to download our Christmas 2013 issue for free on the iPhone or iPad. From Friday the 5th of December... Until Sunday the 7th of December, you can get this issue without charge from the BBC History magazine app. Find us in the newsstand or iTunes. And if you enjoy history podcasts, don't forget to download our new History of Britain special episode, available free from our website. You'll find it at historyextra.com forward slash Podcast. You will need to be logged in to access it but don't worry if you've not already registered because it's free to do and very simple. And that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking to Rick Stroud about Crete in the Second World War while Esme Hanna will be discussing post-war student life. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.
4: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy
2: plane. He came and rammed into our left wing.
4: With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
2: The Western world was asleep.